How many of you are a product of public schools? Raise your hand. All right. All right. How many of you um, rode public school buses? Raise your hand. All right. I'm about to relate to you on some levels of pain that only you can connect with. All right. So uh, I am a product of public schools uh, out in the rural parts of Mississippi. And, and, but I grew up in the country in the rural area. Like, it was a town of two, 3,000 people, which everybody there thought they were living like the high life, right? And then us, like, simple country people were, you know, out there on the margins. And so, um, growing up, honestly, I was pretty sheltered. I went to a private Christian school for the first few years, first to fourth grade, and then we made a transition to go to public school. And of all the transitions that was most difficult for me, uh, in the morning, my mom or my aunt, because we all lived near each other, would take us and the cousins, with me and the cousins, to school. But the way home would have to be the dreaded school bus ride home, right? And we're talking about, like, country kids on a school bus trapped there for about 30 minutes to an hour. That means, like, anything can happen, right? Like, anything bad can happen. And so, I mean, very, I basically got a really weird uh, birds and the bees explanation for about three years there as to how sexuality worked, which wasn't really helpful for me. Um, And so, I was just really confused in general, like, this is how the world works. And I try to I'd, I'd, try to, I'd try it out, and it wouldn't work. And So here's the point, though. Any of you have, like, a nemesis growing up? For some reason, I have always had a nemesis in life. I don't like that about myself. I know I'm the common denominator, and I know I need help. But for whatever reason, I've always found that I have, like, a vis-a-vis, okay? And so my first nemesis I can remember was a guy by the name of Jamie Halfacre. Jamie Halfacre. Anybody's name here, Jamie, and a dude? Good, because Wold had problems otherwise. All right, so Jamie Halfacre. And I remember Jamie, he was like, like he was only 10 years old, but he would bully like 15-year-olds. That's the kind of guy Jamie Halfacre was. And that's a big deal at that time in life, right? Because a year makes all the difference. So here's a kid who's like ruling the roost at 10 years old on the bus. He is a scary dude, all right? And so Jamie uh, decided to kind of zero in on me. And um, one day... He, he turned around in the seat, because I was always like really nervous. I just tried to like get smaller, as small as I could. And he turned around, looked at me one day, and he slapped me across the face. You want to know what he said next? Hey, Robin, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. That's what he said to me. Now, here's the thing. As a kid growing up in church, I just thought, you got me. Like, you figured it out. You broke the code. So I guess you can just keep hitting me. And I remember, like, just being like, boy, Christianity really sucks. <laughs> like, this is really just, just really stinks for a 10-year-old on a public school bus with Jamie Halfacre. And that was kind of the, like, premise for the whole fifth grade year for me being bullied by this kid, Jamie Halfacre, who started off a relationship by simply saying, turn the other cheek. Now, we've been talking about Jesus and how in this sermon series, The Path of Jesus, that he's trying to teach his followers what does it mean to have an inspiring life. 
that if you're willing to listen to me, he's saying, you'll find that your life's inspiring to others. I'm going to give you inspiring tools about how to live in the world. And if you're like me, though, when you've considered turn the other cheek growing up, if it simply means someone gets to slap you in the face, that's not very inspiring. Like, I, I, turned the, I literally turned the other cheek to Jamie there, and he didn't stop. All right, it didn't inspire him. So something's off there. Either like, either I'm the one not being, because it didn't inspire me, I'll tell you that. I didn't want to keep turning the other cheek. Like, I wasn't inspired going, this is great. This is, I'm really living out my life in full right now by turning the other cheek to Jamie or other people. But that's so many times been the message that we give people when we come to a passage like this. And I believe this morning, more than any other passage we've talked about, this has the potential to have the most potency to bring the most inspiration to you and to me today. Especially those of you who found yourselves in the proverbial situations of Jamie Halfacre's telling you to turn the other cheek in life. So I want us to pay attention and there's going to be parts that are really difficult for us to wrap our minds around. There are going to be parts in here you find yourself wanting to get away from, like any week. But I'm just asking you to be present. Stay here, and let's see what God has to say to us, all right? So let's first consider what is Jesus trying to inspire, and then let's consider what does it mean for us. So first, what is Jesus trying to inspire? Look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, Jesus here is referencing a passage from Exodus chapter 23, verse 25. We'll put it on the screen for you. If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This concept of taking retaliation back if there's a power against you, you have to find an equal or greater power to come against it, was pervasive throughout the ancient Near East. It was the way the world worked. And God's people, like, when they hear that line, they were so inundated with eye for eye, tooth for tooth, they were just like, yeah, that's how it works. And so, therefore, if you're conquered, that you'll have to try to conquer back. But if you can't conquer back, you have to live underneath the ones who've conquered you, Right? So it starts with Egypt, and then we go to Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome, where they find themselves at at that moment. God's people were used to this reality that we have to live under the powers that be, unless we can rise up and find a greater power to push against. So the only time they actually found themselves truly successful against the powers that be were the Exodus against Egypt, but that was God. God is the one that rescued them from slavery. Every other power, they had to wait it out. That is until Greece, when Alexander was bringing in power into and expanding the known world, we had a group of Jews led by a guy named Judas Maccabeus who pushed against the forces of Greece at the time, and they found liberation for a short period of time. We're going to match your power and go stronger. And yet even then, a greater power came in, Rome. 
So God's people, what they're actually waiting for is a Messiah who's going to come in and have a greater power than Rome. That's what you would think at least. That would be the natural conclusion. But Jesus in this passage is starting to give very clear hints and direction that this is going to unfold in a much different way because you cannot simply have brute force against brute force. If so, it never ends. I mean, that's how even the book of Judges, we've talked about this, I've referenced it before. The book of Judges is a, is a satirical tale. It's trying to show that no matter how many times you conquer a force you've been conquered by, that it always goes into a downward spiral. And therefore, war is absurd in so many ways if you're simply trying to conquer others. And so Jesus says in verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, if we stop there, that's such a crippling, crippling comment Jesus makes. Just take it. Don't resist it. Just take it. Just live with it. Wait it out. Let the Jamie Hadfakers come and go, and you stand your ground and just be a nice, kind, peaceful person. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't resist the person. But then he uses this clear word after this, the word, this trend, this purpose is right, but. Do not resist the evil one, like meaning do not try to bring equal or bigger force against the person bringing the evil against you. That's what he's saying there. Don't do that anymore. That's absurd. And then he follows it by saying, but. And as my English lit teacher in college would say, whenever you see a but, that it's nullifying what was said before because now you need to focus on what's ahead. Yes, this is true. Yes, don't resist it in these ways. Don't try to bring equal force because it's going to be absurd. But instead, he's saying, try something new. In the next three parts here, he talks about turning the other cheek, giving your cloak, and going the extra mile. What does he mean? Well, I want to break that down for us here. Try to wrap our minds around it. Now, this first one of turning the other cheek, Jesus is painting a picture here, a situation that Rome and Romans, specifically Roman guards, centurions, wherever they went, they saw themselves as better than Jewish people, that everyone else in the world, known world of Rome was a slave. Jesus says here, instead, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, Josh, I'm going to ask Josh Cosby. Y'all give it up for Josh Cosby here. He's going to come up here and help me with a visualization, all right? So, here's the deal. Here's the deal. You ready for this, Josh? You won't be slapped, I promise. But you might want to be nervous a little bit. Um, whenever a Roman guard saw someone who was not a Roman guard, who was a conquered person, they immediately saw themselves as better. They had, a, they had a racist understanding of the world, that they were superior. This person was subjugated to them in one way or another. Now, within Rome at this time, it was a right-handed world, meaning you didn't use your left hand. Like, you wouldn't have been able to be left-handed or at least be, like, respected in society. You would only do the perfidy things with the left hand. You get what I mean with that, right? 
We don't need to talk about, go back a few weeks ago, we talked about lust. There you go. Like you only could do the bad things with the hand, maybe in, when you use the bathroom, whatever else. Okay. Now, everything proper happened with the right hand. And a Roman guard, when they saw a person who was not Roman, they had the right to slap the person if they ever got out of line with them. Now, here's how it would work. When they would slap them, they would always use the back of the hand. Remember, they're not using the left hand. They use the back of the hand. Now, just kind of follow along with me here, all right? So if you're looking at me, oh, what a pretty face. Look at that. You ready? You ready? I'm joking. Okay. Then what they do is they'd come across with the back of the hand and slap there, all right? Now, stay there for a second. All right. Thank you, Josh. All right. Slap with the back of the hand. That turns Josh's face now to the left, right? Now, Jesus is saying here, I want you to turn back to then the other cheek. So Josh would then go, okay, Jesus, I'll turn the other cheek. So then Josh turns that cheek. Now here's the deal. I, I can't use the back of my hand. I'd have to be like, hold on a second, you ready? Like that right there. That's not going to work. That looks stupid. Now here's something that is not in there that you would just have to understand in Roman culture. A Roman would never slap another Roman with the back of their hand. Like if Jeff and I got into it, like Jeff would probably win, but if we got into it, right, like he would use his right fist and I would use my right fist because we would say we're equals. Like I'm not going to slap you because I'm not greater than you. We're equals, so I'm going to use my fist. By Josh being a subjugated person under Rome's rule, by him turning the other cheek, here's what he's saying. You're going to have to do better than that, that I am not less than you. So if you want to hit me, you're going to hit me as an equal with your fist and not the back of your hand. Isn't that crazy? Jesus is actually turning the tables on the other person. He's saying that, yeah, they're going to slap you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn it on them. I want you to turn the other cheek, and now they're going to make you an equal, where if they hit you again, now you're on the same ground with them, that they can't strip your dignity away. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that there's a systemic, broken worldview of racism, and this is not okay. And I want you to do something about it, but I want you to use the system to change it. Josh, thank you. Y'all give it up for Josh. Yeah, look at that. Didn't work. You didn't get hurt or anything. That's great. So Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek. Isn't that different from what we would even think? Like, he's not simply saying, turn the other cheek and just, it's like putting like a flower in the cannon of a tank. Like, I'm just going to come against you and float because Jesus loves me and I love you too. (laughs) He's not saying that. He's saying like, do something about it. Rise up. Push against the systems that are. Don't take it because you have dignity and worth and you're a human being. And let that person know who treats you less than a human, let that person understand just how foolish and wrong and evil they're acting. The next picture Jesus paints happens in verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Okay, so this is a different picture. Jesus is painting the picture of a courtroom. So you're in a courtroom. Now, you have to understand, court and going to court, 
people being sued was actually a very normal thing. This isn't like an American concept, all right, over the last hundred years. This is actually a normal thing that's always been happening, especially at this time. Because, you see, land was hard to come by, and land equaled money. Because land was handed off generationally to the children, okay? Now, that doesn't mean, though, landowners were wealthy, because you may inherit land, but you don't have the tools or the livestock needed to cultivate the land for its greatest use to make money. So that means the people who had money would gouge these prices upon these landowners, the people who didn't have money. They would up the tools that these landowners would want to use. They would up the price of livestock. And so there were many a person who found themselves with all this land, but being crushed by the weight of finances. Of this, of this monetary system. It was an injustice. And what would happen is the person who had all the money would take the person who owed them money to court, and they would sue them. And Jesus is saying to this person who is being sued, you as a person who, were, who is living in a systemic unjust world financially, where those who have have more and those who don't have have less, when this person sues you and they're saying, I want all my money back, he goes, yeah, like, what they're suing you for is your tunic. Now, your tunic was basically your underwear. It was a light linen garment that you would wear just against your skin underneath your robe. So this person is being sued for everything they have, their underwear even. Now, that may sound bad, but here's the deal. Within Jewish culture, they had regulated it to where a person would never be stripped of their full dignity. They maybe have their underwear taken away, but they still would get to keep their cloak because their cloak is like the outer garment. So it's basically like walking around with a long fur jacket, but you're naked underneath, all right? So they're not going to take away that long fur jacket. I'm sorry, PETA, if anybody's into that. So they're not going to take away your long fur jacket. They're just going to take away your underwear, Okay? And here's what Jesus is saying to them. And at this point, people are going, this is a ridiculous story. Are you kidding me? This person being sued over their underwear? But what Jesus says next is astounding. Because the person who's had their underwear sued off of them literally, like they're not in a position of power. Would you agree? But Jesus is saying, I want you to turn the tables on them because that person knows not to ask for your cloak because that would really be unjust. So Jesus is saying, I want you to take off your cloak in the middle of court. I want you to stand there naked. And I want you to look at them and say, is this what you want? Now, here's what happens when a person is naked. It's actually not shameful on the person to be naked. It's actually shameful biblically on the person who sees the person naked. So, for some of you Bible scholars, you'll remember all the way back in Genesis when Noah, right, he gets off the ark. Noah has a little bit too much Vino, right? He kind of loses his mind. He goes into a cave, and he's naked. And two of his sons walk backwards to cover him up because they're saying, we don't want to shame our father. But one son actually sees him naked, and that son ends up being cursed. It's meant to be a story of saying, you're the one who's shamed if you see another person naked. Because what it's saying to you is, you have stripped that person down so much in life of their dignity to now all they have left is they're naked. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Aren't you embarrassed? The person who's naked, they can't help it. But you have let them become naked. Shame on you. That's what Jewish culture would be saying to that person. And Jesus is telling them, when you see a systemic injustice of wealth, 
The way you deal with it is from the inside out, man. Like strip down naked and let them know that that's not okay. And now that person is, the onus is on them to realize, what have I done to you? And people would just be looking at this. I mean, a Jewish person listening to this would be like, that is absurd. Like how crazy is that? It just might work. And then the last one Jesus gives, verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now again, Jesus is painting a picture that Roman centurions, every one of them had a pack they had to carry with them. And these packs would range from 70, 80 pounds all the way up to 100 pounds. These were all the things they needed. And it was heavy. Roman law was that whenever a Roman guard, centurion, got too tired to carry their pack, they could look at a person who was subjugated and make them carry the pack for them up to one mile. Now, within Rome, their line of reason was this. We want to let the person know we value them enough to not make them carry it more than a mile. But listen, friends, slavery is slavery. Just because you tell a person who's a slave all you have to do is work from 7 to 3 p.m., it's still slavery. And Jesus recognizes this. He's saying you are looked at as slaves to these Roman guards, and they're making you carry your pack, their pack for a mile. Now, if you try to deny that and not carry it, you will be beat down, and that's not inspiring. He goes, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to carry it an extra mile. Because here's what would happen. You walk up to like 0.9 miles, 0.95 miles, and all of a sudden that Roman guard's going, okay, we've hit our mile marker, let me get the pack back. And you go, nah, I got it. And at that moment, that Roman guard knows something. They're going to get in trouble with their superiors if they make you carry it longer than a mile. They actually would be penalized and hurt if they made anyone who was a slave do more than the forced labor that was necessary. And you can almost see the picture Jesus is painting here. Like you almost see a Roman guard who went from like, I'm better than you, to like, please just give, just give me the pack back. Just give me the pack back. Just give, and you're like, no, I got it. I got it, bro. I'm good. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. And you go two miles. What you've done is you've turned the situation on its head. And now the person who's been enforcing this on you has to see the absurdity of their injustice, of the worldview they're living in, of the evil they're buying into. It's crazy. Jesus gives three scenarios here. And what this is called is a Talmudic practice that rabbis throughout the centuries for thousands of years would take the ethos of the law and break it down into what it actually meant practically. So like, for example, one rabbi said, if someone calls you an ass, put a saddle on your back. Like if someone calls you a donkey, just go ahead and put a saddle on your back. Turn it up on them. Let them see the absurdity of what they're demanding from you, how they're trying to demean you. And Jesus is giving all these amazing, wonderful examples. And what is he trying to do in all of this? He's trying to inspire the listener to consider a nonviolent resistance to the powers of the day. Because Jesus realizes power against power, like violence against violence, will not work anymore. So I'm going to ask you, though, instead, not to sit back and take it, but to pursue a nonviolent resistance that's inspiring 
It's inspiring to you and inspiring to the world around you. It's amazing what Jesus is asking of his followers, to not just simply sit back and take it, but to do something. Get out there. Push against the powers. Don't let them continue in this. This is not okay. You are a person of worth and dignity. And by doing this, he's doing two things. One, he's giving dignity back to the person who's had their dignity stripped from them. He's telling them that there's no system in this world that has the right to subjugate you. And that there will always be powers that try to do that in this world. We've talked about this before in in the past sermon series on the book of Revelation. If you've been around Christ City long enough, you know that we take what theologically is called an amillennial view of Revelation, meaning we don't believe it's some kind of futuristic thing. We don't believe there's little secret hidden messages by Dan Brown in there, okay? What we believe is that the book of Revelation is trying to paint a picture that always was and is and always will be, that there are powers in this world who want to bring unfair and unjust ruling over others, that there are always people who are fighting for their lives, and that Jesus has conquered. That's the story of Revelation. I know it reads weird, but it's trying to tell you, it doesn't matter if it's Egypt or if it's Rome or even if it's America or other countries where you find yourself in unjust situations, that wherever you are, you don't sit back and take it, but neither do you try to bow up and have a greater force than the other person. Instead, you get smart, and you find the loopholes in the system, and you expose it. And once you expose it, what you're finding is you're getting back your dignity, because no one can give you your dignity back except you taking it. Do you hear me on that? Like, there's not a spouse you can marry, right, that's going to be able to give you enough worth in life. It's going to come down to you wanting to get healthy and whole and do the hard work to realize that you have worth, that you are made in the image of God. Jesus is appealing to the imago Dei in a human being, saying, you have worth, you have value. We, my Father, me, the Holy Spirit, we've created you as this beautiful, wonderful being. And the world is going to constantly try to strip that away from you. But I'm wanting you to go for more. Don't strip it back. That's what violence does. Instead, find creative ways to get yours back, but also expose what they're doing. Because that's the second part that's happening here. By doing this, Jesus is giving the oppressor a chance to change. He's giving the oppressor a chance to change. You know, these tactics of nonviolent Retaliation have been used now for centuries. We have it even around the time of Jesus with Pontius Pilate wanting to raise up effigies, statues to Caesar that went above the temple. And God's people knew that any image of another man or being was an abomination, was something you could not have, especially something so holy as their temple. And the story goes that as Pilate was wanting to raise these up, tens upon tens of Jewish men lined themselves laying prostrate on the ground, put their necks back, expo- I mean, put their heads back, exposed their necks, and said, you got to slit my throat before you do this right here. I will stand in the way of you and this temple before that happens. To where eventually Pilate was retreated. He goes, okay, we're not going to have more violence here. We even had stories here in Memphis, 1968, 
of black men who were being unfairly underpaid compared to white men. And they, 700 of them, rose up on a Sunday in February and said, no more. I am a man. That was their sign. I am a man. I have dignity. I am owed what any other person of another color who is white, I am owed the same. Even the story I heard of, uh, I was reading in a book about a kid who had a horrible sinus infection. It just constantly stayed with him. And it was such an embarrassment to him with other kids to where there was always one bully who would pick on him on the bus. There you go, Jamie Halfacre. Pick on him on the bus. And one day, he told his mom, he goes, Mom, I'm tired of being picked on. So his mom gave him some advice, and then he went and tried it out, and here's what happened. The next time the bully came to him on the bus and was about to pick on him, the kid blew his nose into his hand and then offered his hand to the bully and said, I've always wanted to meet a bully. And the bully then just ran away. That may not be the most soundproof way to deal with your problems in life, but it's a start, especially for a 10-year-old. That could have come in handy for me, maybe on the bus. But in all those situations, you're trying to live your life out in a way that still creates enough space for the other person to see they're wrong. This isn't about giving it to the man, nah, I got you back. I got you. You see, you're a horrible person, stupid idiot, you racist. Instead, you're going, this is not okay. You can't treat me this way. And I'm going to live my life out in a way that exposes the injustice that you keep mindlessly buying into. Because Jesus believes that everybody has a spark and a chance to change. That's why he follows the passage up with the one on enemies. Walter Wink, he said, Jesus does not contend merely to empower the powerless. Jesus did not advocate nonviolence merely as a technique for outwitting the enemy but as a just means of opposing the enemy in such a way as to hold open the possibility of the enemies becoming just as well. So let's look at what Jesus has to say next about enemies, because it's no coincidence he follows this up with this on enemies. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is telling his listeners, I want you to live in such a way that you inspire others to want to be my children. You be children of me. And I want you to live in a way that others look at you and go, I want some of that. Instead of hating your enemy, love your enemy. Instead of trying to oppose your enemy, let your enemy know that you have dignity and weight and worth. And guess what? So do they. Because your enemy, by living the way they're living, they're actually stripping themselves down of their own dignity as well. When I have a racist understanding of the world around me, I look down on another person Yes, absolutely, I'm stripping that person down of their dignity, but I am stripping myself of dignity as well. I am furthering myself more and more away from the Imago Dei, becoming less and less human. And Jesus is after more than simply getting back at others 
or simply just having righteous acts because there's no righteous act without somehow trying to compel the other person to live out for the fullest of their humanity. And then he tells them to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Greek word there is teleos. And it actually can be misleading. He's not saying do it all exactly the right way. The word teleos actually has a futuristic connotation to it. He goes, I want you to start living now as you're designed to for the future you where all these things will work together. I want you to live as if one day I'm coming back and I'm making all things right. I want you to be for refreshing and renewal now in such a way that one day when I come back, all things truly are made new. Live newly now so there's a new you waiting for you tomorrow. Keep seeking after justice no matter how much you are deferred from that because it matters. This is what it's going towards. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Walter Wink again goes on to say, when we demonize our enemies, calling them names and identifying them with absolute evil, we deny that they have that of God within them that makes transformation possible. Instead, we lay God, we play God, we write them out of the book of life. We conclude that our enemy has drifted beyond the redemptive hand of God. There is, in fact, no other way to God for our time but through the enemy. For loving the enemy has become the key both to human survival in the age of terror and to personal transformation. Either we find God who causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, or we may have no more sunrises. If you find yourself in an oppressed situation, as a person of color, because of your gender, if you find yourself in that situation, you're actually called to live in a way that speaks to the imago day in another person, to be such an inspiring person of your, in your own life, another person's inspired to go, I'm living with like only 10% of life here, and I am demeaning and devaluing myself and others around me. If we constantly try to demonize somebody on Facebook with opposing views from us, we're never giving them a chance to actually come nearer to a better understanding of Jesus. Because we say black lives matter, if another person says all lives matter, and then we hate that person because they say that, and we want to get away from them, and we want to ridicule them, because simply uh, by saying black lives matter, you're not bringing down another life. You're simply saying that there are lives here of black people who have not mattered in society. Yes, we live in a free country, but they have been behind the eight ball for hundreds of years. And it's simply saying, like, we have a voice. Will you hear us? And then someone who hears that says, well, I hear from you as you're trying to take something back away from me. I don't want you to take away from me my jobs or my own life that I've set up. It's not my fault. I didn't do this to you. I remember a year and a half ago going to a BLM rally with Drew and, and Jamie and two of our elders. And I had never experienced Black Lives Matter before. Uh, it, it, was, it was starting to hit its stride and really like the momentum 
here in Memphis especially. And I remember sitting in a room, uh, probably one of ten white people sitting in there, a thousand people total. And at first I felt a lot of fear because I'm like, oh man, this is a lot. But I found myself like not having fear as much as sadness though after I sat there for a few minutes. Because when I closed my eyes, I didn't hear a thousand angry, vengeful people. I heard a thousand hurting people. Like, I heard people hurt. And all of a sudden, I found myself like inspired and compelled to go, oh my gosh, how long have I had my eyes closed? Like, how do I look around at the world differently now? Like, what is, go- what is going on here? Nobody's trying to take anything away from me. People are just asking for more dignity. They're asking for more action, more even maybe sharing, <laughs> more giving. And then I thought, well, that sounds like Jesus. Like, it sounds like what Jesus is about. Like, keep giving. We are called to be inspiring and also to inspire others. And this is what it's going to mean for us, friends. Those of you in this room that find yourself, let me put it this way, if you grew up never having to even think about where you lived as being safe or unsafe, if you were in a home where you never had to consider, like, maybe where the next meal was going to come from, if you didn't have to, like, if you, had, if you had a safety school to fall back on in college, okay? Like, if you actually had, like, some pretty decent interviews lined up right out of school. Like, if that's you, you are a person, I am a person, who has benefited from the systems of today. And I want you to know something. doesn't make you a wrong person. That doesn't make you a person who needs to toxically shame yourself. That's, that's not really anything of your choosing. That's just the world you grew up in. And that's safe. But if we are to consider what Jesus is asking out of us here, that means we have to consider that that safe world that we've grown up in actually is dangerous for other people. We have to consider that maybe our own safety and our own livelihood isn't the only thing that we need to attend to. And it absolutely is going to cost you something. I don't know what that is. I'm not going to define that for you. Jesus doesn't define it for us. He simply says that when there are unjust systems in the world, do something about it. And I would say two things to you and to me as people who come from those privileged places. First, listen, don't talk. Just listen. Listen to what's already out there. Don't open your mouth. Don't, don't try to use more words. We talked about that last week. The more words, the less meaning in Proverbs, and that profits no one. Simply listen. Look around. Don't assume because you see BLM that you're like, well, then that's like against me. Don't assume that someone who's trying to speak up for even the rights of women is going to take jobs away from you guys. Don't assume those things. Just, just listen. 
And then when you do speak, ask questions. Just ask questions. What is it like for you to be a person of color growing up in this world? What is it like for you being a woman, always feeling like that you're behind the eight ball with careers, never looked at as the same as other men? What is it like for you? Like, ask those kind of questions. And then talk about your feelings. Surprise, you know it's going to come in at some point in time. Talk about the fear you have. Talk about the shame you have. Talk about all these things inside of you. And then you're going to find something. When you ask another person questions about their humanity, and then you actually share your humanity, all of a sudden you have Imago days mingling with each other. You have to start for something. And listen, doesn't Jesus show us this with the gospel? Like, look real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I just want you to see this. Chapter 5, go to verse 18. He says, Paul says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, meaning this is our job in the world, to find common ground. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, his inspiring appeal. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God then. And then verse 21, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In your bulletins, we have a quote there. You can read it later on. But the idea is this, that if all we're ever consumed with, which this is very common within Western evangelical world, especially in a privileged mindset, that if all we're consumed with is our personal salvific relationship with God, and we don't consider the wider ramifications what the cross means for others. See, the cross was the par exemplar. The cross was more than just like, how Jesus is going to get you connected with God personally, the cross was trying to show you this is now the new way the world works. That those with power, God, bring themselves down so that those without power, us, get to have dignity again. Are you with me? Like those who don't have power, those with power come down and say, I'm going to make myself less so that you can have more because you were always designed to have more. That's the gospel too. So that means you and I, as a person who comes from a privileged place, which isn't a bad word, it just means we have a great example to start with. It's called Jesus and for those in this room that actually come from a place of subjugation, that you're the minority, you're the person who's been behind the eight ball, I want you to know I'm sorry because this is a big ask from you as well. You're the person who's had to live in a vulnerable position, always with your head on a swivel, wondering where it's going to happen next. Can I trust those around me? I know that sounds weird from a person on the other side, but that's truth. Like, I've heard stories enough from those who come from, like, a place of subjugation, a place where they feel like that their voice isn't as loud and heard. It's difficult. 
This is part of that process where we just listen. That if you are that person, though, you have a big ask in front of you from Jesus. Because Jesus is asking you to lead. He's asking you to step forward and to initiate the inspiration. That's a lot. That's hard. I'm sorry. But we're going to need you as a person of color or even as a female, someone who has found themselves in a place where they're the ones not being heard listened to. Jesus is saying to you, hey, listen, I need you to look deep within the system, and I need you to turn it on its head. I'll turn it on its head. I need you to do something about this. It's a big ask, and yet this is the ask. And for you, I would say there's a story I, was, I came across in the civil rights movement in Selma. There was a gathering, a small uh, missionary Baptist church, and um, word broke that there was a, um, um, a nonviolent resistance of picketing, like a march by black college students who had come into violence from oppressors, and many of them were injured. And Jim Clark, who was the sheriff of Selma, had ordered that um, policemen on horses just surround these students so that no ambulance got through to them. So you had these students who were injured, and they couldn't get the attention needed. And then so... Actually, a person from um, the local funeral parlor raced over to the church, ran in, and said, this is what's happened. And all of a sudden, um, one of the leaders of the community stood up, and he said, uh, he started singing a song. He said, do you love Martin Luther? And the response was, certainly, Lord. And he goes, do you love Martin Luther? Certainly, certainly, Lord. Do you love Martin Luther? Certainly, 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 Lord, we love Martin Luther. And then he said to them, do you love Jim Clark? Certainly, Lord. Do you love Jim Clark? Certainly, certainly, Lord. And then at the end, so inspiring. Reverend James Bevel stood up and he said, it's not enough to defeat Jim Clark. Do you hear me, Jim? We want you converted. We cannot win by hating our oppressor. We have to love them into changing. So that's the ask, to love your enemy into changing. And nowhere else is it better shown than at this table. And that's where we're going right now, the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, what a big, big ask. What a big, big ask. Gosh, it's hard. And yet, how inspiring. How inspiring it is to consider what it is you have to say to turn the other cheek, to give them our coat, to go the extra mile. That these aren't laws you're giving us, these are inspirational 
ideas, part of the ethos of who you are, God. And now as we come before the table, we find there's no greater inspiration to humanity than God who humbles himself to become man and then is killed by man so that he can bring man back to his true home with you, God. Thank you for this good news. And may we bring our true selves to you this morning and find true inspiration again to walk away, conform more to your image. Amen.